Hey guys, welcome to the Golden Cinema Podcast. This is Isaac, your host, and first off, thank you so much for listening. Before I get started, I just want to add that this is an open discussion podcast and in no way, shape, or form am I ever trying to insinuate that any of my opinions are facts. Um, Movies are subjective, and at the end of the day, all art should be discussed and looked at from all perspectives because that's the best way of looking at life. Um, And today we're going to be talking about a filmmaker who has captured the attention of everyone from casual film viewers to cinema lovers. And that filmmaker is Christopher Nolan. And the main question, (laughs) the main question is why is Tenet so damn loud? And while I could just say right away why I feel that way, I think looking back at his prior films, there seems to be a very obvious through line, in my opinion, that dates all the way back even before his film, The Following, which there's a short film on the Criterion channel you can check out. Um, It's one of Christopher Nolan's first short films. And like all of his films, um, even, even all the way back in the beginning of his career, without spoiling it, but the idea is, you know, the search for self and using editing and tricks of filmmaking to authenticate that idea. And as early as Memento, looking for the truth, and if the truth is just a mirage of perceptions mixed with the idea of what you want the truth to be. Um, Followed by, you know, um, the prestige, which is all about the manipulation of truth, uh, the sleight of hand, which, like all films of his, often reflect filmmaking in general. And at what cost will someone go to to hide or manipulate that truth? And then there's the point where he got Batman Begins. And this is the point in his career that I think is extremely interesting. And I know I skipped Insomnia and I didn't talk about the following, but I'm just trying to keep this as short and precise as possible because, you know, I don't think this needs to go on (laughs) that long. But, um, you know, Batman Begins was... A moment in time where, you know, um, it was not a property that was necessarily looked at as something beneficial to any studio, really. I mean, Batman and Robin, Batman Forever were both kind of stains on the franchise. And although Tim Burton had major success with the original Batman, and we, you know, love the sequel today... Um, at the time, and even you know now, there are still people who think that first Batman movie is great, and the follow-ups, even even Tim Burton's follow-up, is bad after that. So it's kind of it was kind of a gift that Christopher Nolan was able to get Batman 
at the point in time that he did because he was able to do whatever he really wanted with it. And obviously that paid huge dividends because it put him on the map and his follow-up, The Dark Knight, um, put him in leagues with a composer who who we will continually work with throughout his career. And with it, you know, he got obviously... You know, rest in peace, Heath Ledger. He won an Oscar. And The Dark Knight, I believe, if not nominated for Best Picture, it was one of the movies that helped argue that the amount of Best Picture nominees should be extended. So after The Dark Knight, which I do believe is still has some Christopher Nolan-like qualities, but at the same time, it was kind of in the same way Stanley Kubrick's Spartacus in terms of like a studio driven film, it was his gateway into getting the money for big budget movies that he that he had maybe always wanted. But the, the thing that he did was with his follow-up to The Dark Knight Inception, he took an idea so outlandish and absolutely ridiculous in terms of I can't imagine pitching it to a studio and he landed Leonardo DiCaprio who at the time was a you know who had always been a star but was becoming more and more respected within the film community as an actor which you know um you know some people think since the aviator he's been great but and I agree but I think uh I remember The Departed being that movie that finally shook that stigma of being a teen heartthrob, Titanic, you know, Jack uh, persona that he seemed to have been given. And, you know, Inception totally changed the movie industry in terms of especially sound. The uh, We all remember the bra sound. <laughs> And if you don't remember it from that, I mean, I'm sure you remember it from the other films that stole from that. I mean, I'm sure there's a famous YouTube video of just a compilation of all the films that took that sound clip and just put it into, you know, their own movies and trailers because something about that sound echoed with the imagery was so powerful that it stayed with you. And and this is where I think Nolan began to began to experiment with this idea of sound mixing and what 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 he was trying to get across with sound mixing or what you can get across with sound mixing. And the reason why I say this is because, and we'll come back to Inception because it's the film that most people point to as Christopher Nolan is a dialogue heavy director. He's an exposition heavy director, but at the same time, I do believe that in retrospect, it being such a big budget movie and it being such a almost outlandish, 
I don't want to say outlandish premise, but a unconventional premise in terms of like what you normally see in films. I mean, a dream inside a dream inside a dream inside a dream just sounds absolutely, you know, crazy on paper and even out loud, really, frankly, but it's just absolutely brilliant. Uh, You know, I'm sure he had to, I'm just assuming that he had to make sure that audiences understood, like the studio wanted to make sure audiences understood. And if you look at his prior films like Memento and The Prestige, they're exposition heavy, but they're not explaining anything to you necessarily the same way that, um, that Inception does. Um, but I also think that, that, serves a purpose with the film as well because Leonardo DiCaprio's character is obsessed with the rules of reality uh, and the rule the, the rules of the dream reality more specifically and throughout the film you know he turns to Ellen Page and he's he's constantly telling her what's going on he's constantly telling her what's what's happening and why and all these things and you know, uh, the totem and he's constantly trying to keep himself within the confines of what he considers reality. And this would, this is what makes the ending of the film so interesting because what, what people did with Inception was focus on the rules and the, and the aspects of what's real and what's not real. But, and so when we get to the ending of the film and he finally gets home and is reunited with his children, he goes to spin the top, but before he finds out if it's real or not, or if it's, you know, what we consider real, he runs to them because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's real. Those are his children in his dreams or in real life. And you know, we've all experienced dreams where it's absolutely feels real. I mean, that's just a universal, you know, thing that, that happens. But audience members were so obsessed with the rules, kind of similarly to Leonardo DiCaprio, that they they themselves, instead of running to the kids with him, you know, they stay behind and they look at the top and, they, and they're obsessed. You're obsessed with it. You're absolutely obsessed. and Everyone's talking about it. Everyone's trying to figure it out. And Christopher Nolan literally <laughs> kind of inceptioned us, you know. Uh, he put this idea in our heads about all these rules. And while we're sitting here talking about that, there's this whole other meaning and reality that we're not even seeing within this film. I don't want to denigrate anybody. Like, obviously, you know, I'm sure there's some people that may have interpreted it this way. And obviously, Christopher Nolan has come out and even said that the ending of the movie isn't a concrete thing. It's it's about, you know, obviously him seeing his kids. But, you know, I, it's easy to look at Inception and be it's like it's ex, exposition heavy, which it is. And. At the same time, I feel like Christopher Nolan was able to add a layer of theme and understanding to that. 
uh, to just make the movie a bit more, to give it more depth because of that. It's like, okay, you want me to put all these explanations in it? Well, that's going to be a flaw of the character and it's going to serve the movie's purpose. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean you necessarily, we, that doesn't mean <laughs> you can, that, that makes Inception good to, to people. You know, I mean, I think some people could still watch it with that frame of mind and still have issues with it and that's totally fine but I think it's important to look at it you know maybe just consider this idea that the exposition in it is meant to is meant to serve the story in ways that we and I personally didn't consider when I first watched it and because of the success of Inception I mean he that's that will always give Christopher Nolan the ability to do almost whatever he wants. It, it put him in the stratosphere. I mean, The Dark Knight had already kind of done that, but that wasn't a property of his own. That was someone else's. And, you know, some people could argue or studios could probably try and wrap their minds around, well, hey, listen, Nolan, uh, this is a property that has a storied history and, you know, we we need to see something like we'll give you whatever you want, uh, whatever movie you want to make. And he made Inception and it changed the whole landscapes of films. So following that, The Dark Knight Rises, which which has its issues. But what I want to talk about with The Dark Knight Rises specifically is the IMAX scene that was released prior to the film. Um coming out it's i don't know he didn't do this with inception where where he releases a whole opening scene at least i don't think so but i may be wrong but i think this is the first time christopher nolan released like a scene from his film as a like trailer uh an imax and this was the first sign of this strange what quote-unquote strange choice of sound mixing and what i'm what i mean by that is Bane's voice. Bane's voice is almost incomprehensible in the trailer of, <laughs> in the IMAX trailer for uh, The Dark Knight Rises. I think you can still find it on YouTube. If not, I'm sure you can find it somewhere on the internet. But, you know, Bane's voice is guttural. It's not what it ended up being. And it's like, you don't really hear what he's saying. I know some people could and I'm, you know, you go back and watch and you're like, okay, yeah, this, I hear what he's saying, uh, but it's hard to imagine. I can't put myself 100% in the theater and what I was thinking and what I heard then. But obviously, going back and watching it now, I mean, sure, I can like the, you know, the fire rises and all this stuff. And it's, you know, but I also have seen The Dark Knight Rises in in, in its entirety. So... Of course, now that I watch it, it's like I under, I see what he's saying. But at the time, there was this huge wave of you have to change Bane's voice. It's 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 too guttural, and you can't understand what he's saying. And you know, the end result was his voice did change. And I mean, listen, I'm not here to debate whether that was for better or worse, but it did change, and that is something I don't think that he was 100% behind. 
Um, but this is the first sign of like his sound mixing kind of being in some people's eyes questionable. Now, I don't, I think, I mean, I think the sound mixing and just like the levels, you know, between like what a person is saying and like hearing what they're saying and, and this, this guttural, like, you know, in Bane's voice, like the feeling you get from it, there's a, there's a clear, to me at least, indication of trying to get a feeling of power and, sorry guys, let me just check this real quick, power and, you know, behind it that kind of expands beyond words. It's almost as if he's a type of animal, you know, that ha- that is speaking almost his own language that the people around him seem to understand. Um, and that's that's I think that's really interesting. But, you know, that's not what we ended up getting. But following that, you know, Interstellar, this is the this is the film that kind of really threw people off. I remember going to, to Interstellar in IMAX specifically. Um, I never saw it in anything other than IMAX, so I don't really, I can't really, you know, um, comment on that. But in IMAX specifically, the sound, the music was so loud. It, it, it overwhelmed every like sense that I possibly had. Um, and I wasn't prepared. I wasn't prepared for it. I I was not prepared. Um, and I just, but, but the thing that I, I remember leaving, and I remember people were like questioning whether or not the sound was, you know, their theaters were like, you know, like, oh, they, theaters are messing up displaying this film. Like the sound is off. I remember the forums going crazy about it and just people trying to understand why you know, some of the music was so overpowering compared to the dialogue. And at the time I was I was one of those people who was definitely like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> Why are you doing this? <laughs> and you know, it's some it's one of those things where, you know, you were now that obviously we're very far removed from when Interstellar came out, it's kind of Interesting because I still remember the music so vividly. I remember them, the cornfield, driving through the cornfield. I can see the images in my head of Matthew McConaughey and his daughter and in specific scenes and like the swelling of the music, uh, him crying, talking to Jessica Chastain uh, as Murph when she's old. You know, these moments, I don't remember what they say. And, and it, it reminds me that in almost most instances for me, I don't recall films like obviously there's famous dialogue moments and stuff like that, but often as the way I I view I remember films is often from the feeling I get from it and like a scene like the music swells or the lack of music and that's kind of what I remember. And so I'm getting I'm getting there. <laughs> so if you're still with me, thanks. I'm getting there, okay?
but the feeling I get is not necessarily what's being told. Um, it's what all of it together is is doing. And so, <clears throat> you know, Interstellar came out and people were like kind of lukewarm on it. I mean, the ending for me personally was... And for those out there, please let me know what you think about Interstellar's ending because if you're... <laughs> If anyone's listening, this is this is the very first time I'm doing this, so hey, um, bear with me if the sound quality is a little off. Promise to do a better job as I move along with it, but yeah, Interstellar's ending kind of disappointing, just in terms of the exposition uh, and the explanation, and you know, instead of kind of leaving audiences pondering what ha- why it happened this way instead we're left with you know kind of kind of like a concrete definition of what that ending was which you know uh some people I know a lot of people that really like interstellar's ending and they're like yeah I love it and some people that don't and I am I'm on the fence but what I do love about interstellar is it seems like Christopher Nolan is trying to let his audience know that it's not about the logic. It's about the feeling. It's about the love. Because the whole point of Interstellar is we have to go to this planet. It's the most logical. We have to go to this planet. It's the most logical. We have to go. To... And Anne Hathaway wants to go to a specific planet that is the least likely uh, for human life to to survive. But the reason why she's drawn to that place is someone she loved was sent there. So it turns out, you know, that obviously the place that she wanted to go is the place that was habitable for human life. And, you know, this is this carries the theme that love transcends all logic and any kind of understanding that we possibly have. It transcends time. And Matthew McConaughey is looking at the bookcase. It transcends all that stuff. And I I find it interesting people don't latch on to that when they talk about Christopher Nolan movies. They just, like, especially in her stuff. I mean, I've seen it here and there. But for whatever reason, and I know, like, the Nolan fans are obviously going to be very adamant that they are aware of this. So if you are, don't think that I'm saying you're, saying you're not. I'm just saying, like, as a whole, it's interesting. I haven't really seen critics of Nolan pointing this out. And if they do, it's often, like, it's sloppily done. Anne Hathaway's, you know, not very convincing. The dialogue is wooden. And, you know, that's that's fair. That's subjective. And that's something that you, every, anyone has every right to feel. And I don't know if I disagree, but it, I just want to acknowledge that that opinion exists. Um. But I do think, like, the fact that, you know, this is his own property after Inception. The Dark Knight Rises is him ending a contractual obligation. So if we look at the Batman series as this blip of Nolan doing these contractual studio films, um, you have to look at it as, you know, Memento, obviously, you know, um, the prestige and then, okay, if we're not counting Batman films, and, I, and if I'm missing something, you know, please 
<laughs> well, you know, I'm sure you'll let me know. Uh, but then, you know, the proceeds, and then you jump to inception. And that makes a little bit of sense. It makes a lot more sense if you look at it that way. Like, the prestige, Inception, and then Interstellar. You see this through line that it's like, okay, the prestige is like all about sleight of hand. What is the truth? Inception is about the idea of the truth is love is what matters. And then you go to Interstellar and love is what transcends time and space. And that's what's going to save us in the end. And then, you know, people are like putting Christopher Nolan in this box, like exposition heavy, exposition heavy, exposition heavy. And the follow-up to this is Dunkirk, which is a movie devoid of characters who have names. Um, It's very driven by music only. The soundtrack drives it. The visuals drive it. There's absolutely, you know, there's dialogue when there's necessary, but it's not, it's not anywhere in the focal point of the film at all. So I'm not, I'm not saying Christopher Nolan made it because people were like, yo, this guy only can make movies that rely on exposition, you know? Um, It's kind of fascinating to think about because it's like so obvious that that's not true if you look at his entire filmography, but for whatever reason, like everyone was just so like this idea that Christopher Nolan was unable to direct a film that was just visually driven and you know, musically driven. And it's interesting because, you know, obviously Interstellar with the huge, huge swelling of music that just engulfs you practically. Um, You know, and then Dunkirk, this like ticking bomb. And, you know, people have their opinions of, well, I couldn't relate to the characters because I didn't know anybody. And I mean, personally, I'm just like, yo, anybody in war, I are, like, you know, you have this frame of reference what war is and the people who are forced into it in terms of like, you know, either, you know, if it's like a draft or it's just like the idea of being forced into defending your country. There's a there's a weight to that in terms of just like watching, you know, these young men just sitting on a beach getting picked off one by one. Like, that's harrowing. I don't really need to know anybody's name. When I look at pictures of people who died in wars, I feel sad, regardless of what their names are, personally. So, you know, but I get it that it's a a movie. So, you know, obviously people are are going to look at it different than reality. But I just think, like, you know, in the same way like horror can kind of engulf you in this in this idea that you're literally like we all know we're watching a film uh no one is going into the movies and thinking like all right well hey listen if there's someone out there going in the movies thinking it's we're looking at real you know stuff hey more power to you but most of us believe you know when we go to the movies we're watching something that is crafted by another human being it really and that's and that is the truth you know but yet we leave and some of us can get scared 
you know, it's like this horror movie is like able to literally make us believe that whatever is on that screen is a threat to us in real life or whatever on that screen is a reflection of a real threat in real life. And Dunkirk does that to me. It really does. And this and this is when I kind of was like, wait a second. Have we been looking at his movies wrong here? Because, you know, I just don't. I'm, I just remember being in theaters and IMAX and watching this. And I, and I remember my experience with Interstellar and the sound. I'm like, okay, there's a, there's a, I'm seeing a pattern here. Uh, you know, with The Dark Knight to Dunkirk. Like The Dark Knight, the difference between Batman Begins and The Dark Knight, for me, I mean, beyond just Heath Ledger's performance, and just you know a more a bigger budget for like better camera cameras and and a better composer uh that's the the hit me and like you know batman's driving you like that music the truck flipping over the smack of it on the ground like that is the stuff i remember uh the ending music of it where it's like you know he's the hero we don't you know the don't deserve line i'm butchering it i don't want to do that you know um but this through line i'm starting to see in all of nolan's films like the following like following people in his short film like chasing oneself and what that does to some like the self-destruction and you know, just like these layers and layers and layers and like Dunkirk, this exercise of like what sound and just visuals can do. And what I'm saying, and what you really, what people I don't think understand is this man is getting the money that, you know, all art house filmmakers dream of having to do unique Things like Inception and Interstellar and Dunkirk. Like these films are not your prototypical big budget movies. They're really not. And I don't think people, you know, no one has, like, I don't know if people are, are appreciating it because, you know, people get upset with his fans because they think they overrate him and stuff like that. And, you know, I mean, listen, that's, not really up to debate i mean if someone likes somebody even if it's to the the degree that i may find you know a bit uh you know a bit much by my taste it doesn't take away the fact that that person is still influential and great and you know, and doing stuff for cinema that is absolutely fantastic. I mean, there's no, like, I just don't think there's any denying that. But I was very, very interested after seeing Dunkirk of what Christopher Nolan was going to do next. Um, And, you know, obviously this whole pandemic has happened and, you know, hopefully everyone's staying safe out there, but you know this this drive to keep to put tenant in theaters to not put it at home to make sure that people see it in IMAX or have the opportunity to 
the way Christopher Nolan had intended it to be seen, the way he wanted it to sound, the way he wanted it to be viewed. So, you know, some people are like, oh, you know, they thought Tenet was going to save cinema. And I know some people did, like the, the movie industry, quote unquote, in uh, theaters. But I don't know if Nolan's, you know, intention was to do that. I think Nolan just felt that maybe, at least in my opinion, felt that Tenet was this movie he crafted for cinemas. And he's a very advocate person who thinks, you know, film and movie, the movie theater experience is the way that film should be viewed. And I definitely agree that his film should be, you know, there's no way that people shouldn't view his films on IMAX, at least initially. But when I walked into the Tenet movie, I had watched some trailers, but I honestly, I try to keep away from forums and ideas and theories. Super excited for John David Washington. Super excited for Robert Pattinson. Um, I just felt like it was going to be something big because it just felt like everything he had done was building up to this movie. Um, like Dunkirk was like this weird warm-up exercise. <laughs> I don't want to discredit Doug Kirk like it's a warm-up exercise, but it felt it felt like a a break-off point from like before and after, you know, like this transition. And for those who've seen Tenet, one of the major complaints is the confusing plot, the lack of, you know, understanding, the lack of explanation, the lack of the overabundance of sound. And I loved every second of it, personally. I was in the theater. I was so fucking confused. <laughs> and I turned to my friend next to me and I was like, I have no idea what is going on, but I fucking love it. And I and when the trains, when like, you know, this is obviously going to be a little spoiler heavy. When John David Washington is being tortured at the trains and the sounds and it's like, you know, you see this guy who's like saying all this shit and you feel what he's saying, but you can't hear it and you just hear these train tracks. It's like, ugh, gets under your skin. And there's like very specific dialogue that were in the trailers and that are in the film that he makes sure you hear. Like, it's don't try to understand it, feel it, you know? And, you know, the beginning of the film, it's like, you know, he, this, this, the opera scene where you run in and it's just like this overabundance of music, like this loud, like the smacking of the, uh, you know, instrument on the ground when the, the terrorists or whatever you want to call them, uh, come in and start, you know, uh, doing, doing terrorizing. But, uh, <laughs> you know, that, that that visceral moment was elevated by the sound. And I truthfully don't think any dialogue that was said in that was necessary to, was, was necessary for, uh, for, the audience, for the audiences. I really don't. And that's up to debate. It's really up to debate. And this is why this is an open discussion. This is not like, the end all be all in my opinion like or end of conversation like you know random youtube comment <laughs> whatever internet bullshit 
I'm just, you know, this is just what I saw. And I just think, you know, I, I, I'm sure other people have, and I just want to put it out there. Maybe there's other videos, but, you know, um, Christopher Nolan's Tenet continued to just, you know, there's still the dialogue, the exposition, the, you know, the, like this, this, this talking, but at the same time, people, you can't hear what they're saying. So a lot of the time you really can't. And there's no denying that, you know, there's that scene where Robert Pattinson is bringing on one of his guys for the airport uh, scene, which is just phenomenal. And it's like revolving around them and there's talking about the plan, but you can't hear shit. You can't hear fucking shit. Like it's literally like, and you're being whisked around, like, you know, like you're on some kind of like weird ride where it's like, you're getting like, you're spinning and spinning and this music is drowning you. And like, you're trying to like hear, but like Christopher Nolan's not letting you. And he's like, oh, you're trying to hear them. You're trying to see it. It's like, it's almost, it's almost like he's fucking with you, you know, in a way. But what I think it is, is, is for me, it was at the end of the day, it's not about what they're saying. It's about the feeling you're supposed to get in this moment. And now I know people are going to be like, well, this is, that ruins the film. That ruins it. Cause the whole, the whole, how am I supposed to care about anything if I don't know what's going on? And, uh, you know, listen, that's a valid opinion. I'm not discrediting that, but I just, listen, I think this is just what Christopher Nolan wanted personally. I think this is what he wanted to do. And if you continue on, you know, with the film, it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, hold back that, that aspect of it. And, you know, I, I've watched the movie like five times, honestly, I really have. <laughs> and I am not, you know, like I can't sit here and give you a full detailed analysis of what the moving parts that make me, that make sense. But I, I felt it, you know, just like he wanted me to. I felt it. I felt that friendship between John David Washington and Robert Pattinson in the film. I felt John David Washington's drive to protect this woman his, um, that transcended literally, you know, time in a way, like going back and, you know, and just revert, like, you know, all that stuff. It's just, I felt all that. This woman wanting to be free of this man who's clearly has the world in his hands, you know, and this is a you know, he has said this is his take on a Bond movie. And, you know, everyone's like, oh, we want Christopher Nolan to make a Bond movie. If Christopher Nolan is never going to make a studio film in which he can't do what he wants to do ever again. He's done that. It's Batman. He did, he did it to the point where it was so fucking good. And then with Inception was so revolutionary that he never has to do that again. He can make his own version of, of a Bond movie. And he did. And this is what it is. And... <clears throat> You know, whether or not you think it's successful or, you know, he made a mistake with the sound mixing. It's pretty obvious that he, at least to me, that he is just like, listen, it's not about the logic in it. 
this is literally the messiest, you know, not messiest, but the one of the, it's just like Inception, you know. It's Inception stripped with that character who's obsessed with the rules. Instead, we have Robert Pattinson, who is like Leonardo DiCaprio's character, almost a reflection of Christopher Nolan himself, like the way he dresses. I mean, you know, he's kind of like, especially with the airport scene, you know, like I literally could imagine Christopher Nolan talking to a studio exec or or one of his producers. It's like, I want to crash a plane into, into this shit and be like, what? Like, well, don't be dramatic. You know, I literally can hear, I can just imagine this man saying that to somebody. So, you know, and this character, Robert Pattinson's character is just like, hey, you know, he's not questioning. He knows. He's so aware, more so than the protagonist of everything that's happening. He is, he, and you see it throughout the film when you first meet him. You like, uh, you don't drink on the job. And you go back and you watch that scene. It's, it's because he already, he's already met John David Washington before and he's worked with him. But just that little scene, it's like this little like nod. And he's like, you know, John David Washington's like, well, I don't drink that. I drink this. He's like, no, you don't. You know what I mean? Like, it's this weird, almost like obvious, almost omnipresent character. And, you know, there's certain moments within it where you do clearly hear the dialogue. And that's the thing is we need to make sure to look at this film and, and try and, and when just split up those moments, like what does he want you to hear? What does he not want you to hear? And the things you hear are all about feeling it. Don't try to understand it. What's happened has happened. And but even then, there is still the th- like you can go on to Reddit. I'm sure Tenant. There's like I mean, there's tons of like visual ways of interpret interpreting this film, and visual ways of understanding it that people have made. Inter- but while everyone's distracted by that, I just want to point out that I don't think it even matters. Like I think it's cool to, to and I and this is my opinion. I don't think it really matters to understand the temporal pincer and all that stuff. I think at the end of the day, it's 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 continuing that love, that 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 extension of self, that you know, logic is is not is only something that can sometimes can heighten and help show something and help us understand something, but at the same time, love extends us beyond that. And, you know, Robert Pattinson and John David Washington's characters in this movie are extremely, have great, great chemistry. And in the end, when you see Robert Pattinson, who you know is going to go off and, and, you know, die, you know, he, he looks back and this is Christopher Nolan looking at the audience saying, I'll see you in the beginning. To me. I'll see you back at the start of the film. Let's do this again. Let's go through it again as many times as you want. Until you get it. You know? It's 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 brilliant to me. Perfect. It's really it's really the 
it seems like the accumulation of everything he's made up to this point and just put into a film that encapsulates that you know it's the it's the layered um especially like post the dark knight you know and i mean even before then even back to his short film where he's chasing himself uh, or the character which i still feel is a representation of nolan chasing himself and like the following chasing himself um and memento using a version of him, different versions of himself to get what he needs um inception coming to terms with the idea that fuck all the rules who cares to interstellar that love is the the through line the thing that extends us beyond anything in this life to dunkirk where this exercise in sound and and editing that this ability to make you care and see things from a perspective of people that you don't even know who's their names you know that are lost in time to a movie that's literally about time being manipulated um and ways to get for selfish reasons and for reasons that are altruistic and I think that's important to know. And I think, you know, while I just have this, I think we really need to try and not, I think it's important to criticize and critique and definitely, you know, not just like deify people. Um, And I think some Christopher Nolan fans definitely, and this is, I think we spend too much time looking at what fans of people feel than what actual the actual directors, and it colors our perceptions a little bit. Um, and I'm not saying it's Nolan fans' fault that you know people have this idea of him. I think it's more of like you know YouTube and like you know the internet and the dissection, and you know I think I think it can sometimes create these narratives that paint a picture of someone's work in this in a person that isn't a true reflection or is a unfortunate you know painting of a skewed version and you know like perspectives like i said it's like this is an open discussion it's not meant to be factual it's just meant to present an idea you know and hopefully, you know, listen, someone sees this and they, you know, they go on from here and it's like, you know, it keeps going and going. So that's what it's all about. So it's all about, you know, inception, right? You know, <laughs> but I just want to say thanks for listening. I think, I think that's pretty much it. Thanks for listening to the very first podcast video episode of Golden Cinema. I'm not sure what exactly this is going to be called beyond that, but, uh, Thank you so much. All cinema is golden. You guys stay golden. And I'll see you in the beginning. (laughs) Take care.